St. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, Therefore, my beloved sisters and brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. By the way, if we have some movement and cries, that's all cool, because every time a child cries, um, an angel gets its wings. You know, that's sort of a, um, a take on, um, it's a wonderful life, right? Um, so that's cool. Don't get nervous. We've all done it. We've all been there. And it's just rejoicing. Today we have transferred the Feast of All Saints, which happens November 1st, to this Sunday. Hence, we have a lot of baptisms. I just want to remind you that the gospel that we read the Sermon on the Mount, blessed be the poor in spirit, blessed be those who mourn, blessed be the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, blessed are you when people revile you for what you believe. These are words that have been lived out by Christian saints. All Saints Day is the day where we commemorate every single saint listed on the church calendar and thank God for their proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord, for their vision that is set out in the book of Revelation read in the first lesson today of a gathering place where people breaking down barriers of every kind, gender barriers, racial barriers, political barriers, ethnic barriers, come and sing around the throne of God, rejoicing in the vision of a God of love. Today's the day that we celebrate that, and we remind ourselves of the fundamental Christian vision to live into that ethic. That's what today's all about. But as the epistle mentions, the world can't seem to understand this. The world wants to divide us, wants to offer separation and barriers. And Christians are these weird folks that say, no, all are one because of the love of God made manifest in Jesus Christ. Today, I am not going to preach for long. I want to tell you two stories. Okay? I'll tell two stories and then I'll wrap it up for today. And these two stories are about people who are in the church calendar, whom, who are rooted in the Episcopal Church, in our faith, and are recognized as saints who have lived out the words that were written in the gospel and had that vision of God's love for all people and who suffered persecution for that fact. The first story that I want to tell you is about Fanny Corley. Fanny Corley. Now, Fanny Corley came into the Episcopal Church when she was 25 years old. When she came up for confirmation, she took on the name Francis. Any Holyoke grads in the house? I know there are Smith grads, Wellesley grads, Vassar grads, any Holyoke folks? No one. 
wow, that's surprising. Okay, well anyway, Fanny Corley, or Francis, went to Mount Holyoke College, which was the bastion of uh, the Christian evangelical movement. And yet she found her faith rooted in the Episcopal Church. But inspired by both Holyoke and the Episcopal Church, she began to work in the city of Philadelphia. She worked with immigrant women who were being exploited as sex slaves, even to the risk of her life. She worked with African-American women who were moving out of the South and trying to fend for themselves in the Northeast. And being rooted in that sort of ethos, she recognized that without spiritual grounding, she would not be able to do the work that she was called to do. And so, she began to regularly center herself in a daily regimen of monastic prayer. Prayers that happen five to seven times a day. In fact, she went down to a convent, which I don't think it no longer exists for, for the Episcopal Church, called the All Saints uh, Sisters of the Poor, which was in Cadenceville. And while she was at this convent, she receives a vision. She wanted to further her study and use her studies to advocate for the poor. So she went on to Wharton Business School, took a few courses in economics, got married and discovered that, you know, Philadelphia wasn't the place for them. So she went on to New York City and she settled, she and her household moved into a settlement house. A settlement house is a place where the rich and the poor uh, live in one community, learning from each other and trying to create a vision of the kingdom of God. And she enrolled in graduate school at Columbia and she got a master's degree. Now recognizing her talent, Al Smith, who was the governor of New York at that time, appointed Francis, or Francis Perkins by now, to work in the state government. Eventually, <coughs> under the next governor, she became the, the chief of the New York State Department of Labor. But when her boss, whom we know as Franklin Delano Roosevelt, became president, he wanted to bring Francis Perkins on to Washington. And Francis Perkins would be the first woman to serve as Secretary of Labor, or the first woman in a presidential cabinet. Now we know that misog misogyny exists now, but imagine in the 1920s, a powerful woman trying to fend for herself with integrity in the midst of a situation at a presidential level. You see, even in her life in the public sphere, what grounded Francis was a sense of Christian vision and vocation. Praying five times a day, being centered, going on monthly retreats to the convent 
so that she would hear the voice of God working through her. And because of her prayerful discernment, guess what we have? Not only the 40-hour work week, but we have something called the social security system. Thanks to a person, a saint, who lived into the gospel with a vision of the world, who was so inspired by that vision that she dared to live out her faith, even in the midst of persecution. Story number one. Story number two. The story of young William. William was around 12 or 13, and he was sent away to study um, away from home, perhaps because he was a little, you know, mischievous or rebellious or something. So he is, ends up at his uncle and aunt's house, and they hire a private tutor for him. And um, his private tutor, a guy named Joseph Milner, begins to inspire him. And he becomes inspired and begins to be enthusiastic about faith. Now, after a couple of summers of this, his mom observed the new enthusiasm in this child and said, no, well, we can't have this. Brought him home to make the child less enthusiastic about faith and about other stuff. And then this child grew up and it came time for college. So he goes off to a school for college. And while he's at college, he lives the college life at that time. You know, being a person of great wealth, he threw great parties. He was an expert debater, uh, someone who was, who was sharp, his wit was sharp, very intelligent, excellent human being, excellent party thrower. And he befriends this guy named William Pitt. They become really good friends. A few years later, this man, by the name of William, William Wilberforce, at the age of 21, becomes elected to Parliament, and so does his friend, who, at the age of 24, becomes uh, Prime Minister of England. Wilberforce was considered the greater of the debaters, someone who could really speak, really attract the attention of all, someone with an angelic voice. And so he fought for causes that you know, would serve the mercantile interest. Until he went on a trip. He decided that he wanted to advance his career, and so he decides to go on a trip to continental Europe over two years to study how governance happens. Now on this trip, he is joined by Isaac Milner, the nephew of the person who tutored him as a young student. And he begins to converse with Isaac and learn lessons from him. You see, Isaac was an Anglican or an Episcopal clergy person. And he was someone who not only was astute in terms of his knowledge of theology, but also was uh, a professor at Cambridge teaching math and science. Wilberforce was so attracted to the Christian worldview 
and to the understanding that you don't have to leave your brain at the door to be a Christian, that he recommitted his life to Christ. In fact, there is a famous, famous saying. Once he gave his life entirely over to Christ, he said, a sense of great sinfulness came within me. But then I relied on the unspeakable mercies of my God and my Savior. And he handed over his life entirely into God's hands. From that time forward, there was something that was percolating in Wilberforce. He thought maybe he should abandon his career in Parliament and don on the cloth, the cassock. And as he was in this period of uh, discernment, he met a friend of the family, a guy named John Newton. Who's John Newton? What do you, which hymn did he write? Famous hymn. Come on, guys. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. And we know that that hymn, Amazing Grace, or John Newton, was a former slave trader who converted his life over to becoming a Christian. John Newton and his friend William Pitt encouraged William not to go into the, the priesthood, but to live out the ministry in Parliament. And so for the next 20 years, he worked in Parliament to end the transatlantic slave trade. In the midst of this, he faced persecution. He faced assassination threats because the economy was all bent on the slave trade. He and his friends were accused of being spies for the French. He faced rumors about his marriage. But he withstood. He withstood all that. And with a, a sense of Christian fervor, pushed on for 20 years in Parliament until victory was won. But you see, he was not satisfied. After ending the trading of slavery, he devoted himself for the next 25 years to ending the institution of slavery itself. 25 years in the midst of physical, emotional, and yes, spiritual decline, ups and downs, he fought for 25 years. And three days before his death in 1833, he finally heard the good news that the House of Commons passed a law emancipating all slaves in the British Empire. Beloved, these two people, these two saints, are part and parcel of the heritage into which seven people are going to be baptized into, into which all of us have been baptized into. A legacy that we are not satisfied with the world as is, but we push on, we march on to make heaven and earth become one, inspired by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why today is important. That's why we commemorate all saints. That's why we baptize children into that vision of the world as it ought to be. As a pastor, I usually ask myself, and I'll, I'll wrap up in two minutes, I promise. I ask myself, who's going to be the next Francis Perkins? Who's going to be the next William Wilberforce? 
And then I see each and every one of you sitting in this pew or watching from online. And I remind myself that you are all sitting in these pews or listening. You are that. Stay thirsty for the kingdom of God. And may the power of the gospel inspire us not to be satisfied with the world as is, but into the, to live into the world as God has desired it for each and every one of us. Amen.